Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. History is full of frauds who convinced other people they were great. And history is full of truly great men and women whose work was passed over because they were unable to convince pretty much anybody of anything. But rarely do the two categories merge. Rarely is a great man also a fraud. And rarely is a fraud truly a great man. But most people aren't Martin Cooney, who changed American medicine while entertaining the masses at sideshows on Coney Island and at World's Fairs. Don Raffle is the author of the new book, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, How a Mysterious European Showman Saved Thousands of American Babies. Don, thanks for being here. Oh, well, thank you. So this is such an amazing story that you tell. But just to dispense with the mystery right up front, how did this guy, Martin Cooney, which, of course, was not his real name, which we'll get to, um, but how did he save all those lives? Well, he placed premature babies in incubators in sideshows in the early 20th century. So people would pay a quarter to go look at two-pound babies in incubators right next door to the sword swallowers and the strippers on Coney Island, Atlantic City. But what's strange is there wasn't treatment available for these children in hospitals. So he was the one who was doing it. And over time, all the hospitals in the New York metro area and near Atlantic City were actually sending their premature patients to the sideshow because they didn't have the equipment to save these children. So the obvious question, why were incubators at Coney Island and not in, you know, wards in hospitals where, well, the babies were being born? I mean, why were people trekking these kids out to Coney Island? So the hospitals did start to try the incubators in kind of a scattershot way. But at that time, American hospitals were under-resourced. There was a high overall infant mortality rate. They really didn't have the skilled nursing that they needed because it's not just the incubator that you need. You need nurses who can feed a preemie. You need a very low nurse-to-patient ratio. You need conditions to be immaculate, and sometimes those hospitals weren't. Mm -hmm. So when they tried the incubators, they weren't getting great results. And the preemies weren't a priority, and they were just kind of like, you know what, this is not working. And increasingly, really tragically, there was a eugenics movement in this country Babies that were this small were referred to as weaklings in the medical literature. And although eugenics didn't directly target preemies, it did target children who were born severely disabled. And preemies, people had the feeling of, well, will they ever be productive citizens? So it's not as if there were no doctors really trying to save them. There were. And Martin Cooney had a great ally in Chicago and Dr. Julius Hess. But generally speaking... It was a culture that really didn't necessarily support treating these babies. Okay, so if that is the case, that people thought, we well, can't save these kids anyway, and plus, maybe they're not really sort of, maybe they don't really have the stuff to make it as an adult. Why did this guy, who, as I said, was this weird combination of kind of like showman and doctor cutting edge, but also like charging people money to come see these babies. Why did he care about them? Well, interestingly, so he grew up in a family of doctors and he wasn't a doctor himself. He said he was. He wasn't. But I think somehow this idea of being in a a healer was maybe part of his emotional makeup. And I think once he started doing this, 
How could you not? He saw that he was saving these children's lives and nobody else was coming for them. So over the years, parents would bring back the babies as toddlers to come see him. He, in time, was getting invitations to high school graduations, to weddings. And he was always saying he was trying to make propaganda for preemies. So he was trying to not only convince the medical establishment, but he wanted the public to really see and understand that these children could be saved. Mm-hmm. Where did he come across uh, or did he invent the technology? Because what he was really displaying was not just children, right? But he was just saying, here's a technology and it can save people's lives. How did he come across this technology? Uh, he said he invented it. He did not. Okay. Um, or his version <laughs> of it. From a long list of things. Um, not a doctor. <laughs> not named Martin Cooney. Didn't no, really invent no. incubators. Okay. No. So the incubator as we know it was invented in the late 1800s in France by an engineer who was also not a doctor. And this engineer, in order to show off his fantastic new event invention, created shows where people could look at the babies and in incubators. He ran it as a charity, and he brought it to the Berlin Industrial Exposition in 1896. And this was a splash. Huh. It attracted worldwide attention. The Germans referred to it as the child hatchery, and there were drinking hall songs about this before the show even opened. Thousands of people came to look at this. And because this engineer kept saying, my new machine is so fantastic, it's practically automatic. It basically works by itself. You just put in the baby and voila. So a minute later... All the showmen were interested in this because why not? So Bailey of Barnum and Bailey had a show in London. The London Royal Aquarium had one. There were shows in France. There were shows in Italy. Martin Cooney, who was already in America by then, had somehow gotten wind of this and it first had a show in London with his backer. They went to London first. He came back to the United States as now the eminent Dr. Martin Arthur Cooney with a wide experience in Europe and started showing the incubators here. People were fascinated because they had never seen babies that small. They simply couldn't believe they were real. Mm-hmm. So the other showmen, this is not a toaster oven. It's a hell of a lot of work. So... It's a system of care. It's the incubator, but it's also feeding tiny, tiny babies one drop of nutrition at a time, sometimes through the nose, because babies that small don't have a swallowing reflex. So the other showmen were just like, you know, forget it. This is not worth it. They got out of it. He stayed in. And I think because whatever his initial motivation, I do think he really cared. Um, Just to stay with the technology for a minute— What did incubators do for little premature babies that was so special um, that was not being done for them just, you know, in a hospital being put in a little, you know, a hospital bed or a cradle or whatever? It just created a warm, consistent temperature that could be tailored individually for each infant. Okay. So hospitals did try things like warm rooms. People at home sometimes put the baby in the shoebox and kept it near the oven. So that was the the warmth. A premature baby like that has very immature circulation, metabolism, They can't regulate their body temperature, so they could freeze to death in a room that's room temperature. And room temperature was also colder if you didn't have central heating. Right. 
But as he kept saying, it was part of a system of care. And again, it was the nutrition. He insisted on breast milk only, which was expensive. He paid for wet nurses. The hospitals couldn't always afford that. Sometimes they had to use some other kind of formula that wasn't as good. He spared no expense in the treatment of these children, and he funded it by charging admission. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Dawn Raffle. She's the author of the book, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, How a Mysterious European Showman Saved Thousands of American Babies. So let's talk about his hucksterism. We've already come up with a list of things about him that are not true. His name is not his name, not a doctor, you know, didn't have this wide sort of medical experience, didn't invent the incubator. Who was this guy really? And why did he keep making things up about himself? I think he felt that he had to to stay in business. Well, first of all, his his name was Michael Cohn, and it wasn't terribly unusual for Jewish immigrants to change their names when they came here. And especially as a showman, you would have to do that at the time. There was a lot of anti-Semitism, and I think he just, you know, made that decision. I would judge him more harshly if the credentials were real. If he really were a doctor and he decided, you know what, I think— I'm just going to make a lot of money by running a show on Coney Island. Then I would view him as self-serving. He didn't have any other recourse. He couldn't practice in a hospital. And he never did anything illegal. He always had, quote, unquote, assistants who really had a medical license. So he would say, can you sign this paperwork for the health department for me? If Hmm. a death certificate had to be signed, he would say, oh, you know, can you sign that? He was sort of vague about it with the people who worked for him. But I think that he felt he needed the credentials if he was going to stay in business. So over time, the credentials became increasingly embroidered. If you look at the very, very early, like 1900, he wasn't really making those claims. They came later. Hmm. If he wanted to be a doctor, is it crazy to ask why didn't he go to medical school and just be a doctor? Yeah, I think he was already in this. He was 30 when he got started. His wife was a registered nurse. His daughter became a registered nurse. And then at that point, if you're a public figure and then you go to medical school, I don't know how (laughs) you do that. Right. He just felt like he couldn't go backwards. Like, he already was who he was, and then... Things got a little fancier from there as time went on. I think so. And increasingly, you know, so for instance, the great French doctor whose hand-picked intern he said he was, well, that doctor was conveniently dead. And, you know, (laughs) if you'll recall, not only was there no internet, there was no long-distance phone calls. There's nobody who's going to fact-check any of this stuff. Right. Nobody was going on this guy's LinkedIn page to see if that seemed about right to them. No. And it... He was sort of a reporter's dream. So if you're a feature reporter on a, on a deadline, you're just going to write down what he said. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to play a clip from one of Dr. Cooney's babies. Her name is Lucille Horn. And she, when she was 95 in 2015, she described how, as a baby, she ended up in an incubator. Here she is with her daughter, uh, Barbara, who's, who's interviewing her. My father said I was so tiny, he could hold me in his hand. I think I was only about two pounds, and I couldn't live on my own. I was too weak to survive. So the hospital didn't have anything to No, they didn't have any hope for me at all. It was just, you die because you didn't belong in the world. 
Were parents hesitant to fork over their kids to a guy who had a sideshow, you know, showing babies versus like a hospital where the credentialed people were in general? What I have to say is you have to imagine the terror of these parents at the time having a child that small and what would happen. In the case of Lucille, and I spoke to her also a couple times in 2015, she told me that the doctor, she had a twin who died at birth, and the doctor actually said, well, don't rush to bury that one that died because you'll have to bury the other one too. So in that case, they were saying there's just nothing at all. Increasingly, they were saying, if you want your child to survive, you need to go to this sideshow. Wow, that's amazing that that was coming out of hospitals, right? That that was like the medical advice. Yes, out of all of the major New York City hospitals, all of them were doing this. Wow. So a lot from Bellevue and Maimonides and every hospital that I was looking, New York Hospital, they were saying that this is your choice. And I think the parents, yeah, they were upset about it. Some of them were very embarrassed One woman who I interviewed, she and her brother were twins. They were born in 1937, premature. Their mother's hospital roommate had premature twins. And the doctor said to both mothers, this is already 1937. You have to go to Coney Island. The other mother said, no, I'm not sending my children to a freak show and having people pay admission. Those twins died. And the woman I spoke to, she and her brother are still alive. Hmm. So... Yeah. Sure, people were upset about it, but they felt like they didn't have a choice. What were people's reactions? Just just people who came in as spectators to see these little kids. Were people receptive? Did they think, this is weird that really little kids are being put on display? Like, my understanding is sometimes they'd have bows. I mean, this is a show. They're trying to get people in through the door. And I just wonder what people thought about this. You know, at one point I described it as medical-grade cuteness. Yeah. <laughs> people loved seeing it. It it lifted, you know, especially during World War One. people would come. There were people who would come every single week to look at the babies, almost like a reality TV show. They'd have a favorite baby they'd be rooting for, and maybe that baby went home and they'd pick another favorite baby. You know, there was a woman who came every single week for years. There were other people who were just fascinated the way you would be at a freak show that here's a human being that's this small. He was often next to, you know, people they called midgets, you know, and they had freak shows on the midway and all kinds of crazy things on the midway. And people were curious. Mm -hmm. And that voyeuristic instinct has not gone away. People love watching reality television. It's just not on the midway anymore. I, I want to play one more clip from Lucille, the one-time baby who we heard from before, Lucille Horn, um, who, again, was 95 years old when she talked about being this little child in the Coney Island show that Dr. Cooney was was putting on. And, and here she is talking about later uh, meeting the doctor. He happened to be there at the time I went in. And I went over and I introduced myself to him. And there was a man standing in front of one of the incubators looking at his baby. And Dr. Cooney went over to him and he tapped him on the shoulder. And he said, look at this young lady. She's one of our babies. And that's how your baby's going to grow up. Don, what was your experience tracking down people who had been in these incubators? Were they hard to find? Just what was that like? 
They were hard to find because it, there weren't any records of this. Apparently, Dr. Cooney had his own records. Where they have gone, I don't know. Okay. I tried and tried to find anything like it, and I think they were just discarded. So I found myself, in some cases, just trying to find cases that were in the newspaper 100 years ago and writing to any family with that last name in that town, posting on World's Fair forums, posting on Facebook. And gradually, I found uh, some of these former babies, and I brought them together for a little reunion in 2015 because almost the first question everybody had for me is, have you met any others? We've never met anyone else. And so um, it was really fun to bring them together. And and. Of course, they had a lot of questions about him as well because he was mysterious. Right. And what's incredible is by that time, people must have been in their 80s and 90s. So clearly, the incubators had worked. Like, these people had lived very long, uh, successful lives. Yes. uh, The youngest of them are in their 70s now. And I also spoke to people whose parents were in those incubators, you know, who said, oh, you know, my mom had a wonderful life. She lived into her 80s or her 90s. Since the book has come out, I've heard from even more people who've said, you know, one person said to me, you know, my mom said she was born weighing two pounds and she was in a sideshow and nobody would believe it. I said, yeah, that that happened. (laughs) That was real. Don Raffle is the author of the new book, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, How a Mysterious European Showman Saved Thousands of American Babies. Don, thank you. This is great. Thank you. If you want to see pictures of Dr. Cooney and his Coney Island sideshow, plus more about Lucille Horn, the baby that Dr. Cooney saved and that you heard from, you can head to our website, innovationhub.org.